we reach now uh, the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and it's a privilege to be uh, here worshipping as the people of God, and if you're visiting with us this morning, an, another warm welcome, it's lovely to have you here. We're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and when we think of this Gospel's narrative, we can really break it down into three parts, chapters 1 to 8, uh, where Jesus is validating who he is as the Messiah through miracles that he offers that will that really offer a preview of what the coming kingdom will look like. There'll be no sickness, there'll be no sin, there'll be no suffering. And then in the latter parts of chapter 8, chapter 9 and 10 are where others then begin to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. You are the Christ, that is the Messiah, was Peter's confession. And now, as we arrive in Mark chapter 11, from chapter 11 onward, all the way through to chapter 16, are the final days of Jesus' life, where he will go through what he has mentioned already three times, with prophetic precision, and that is a suffering, a scourging, an unjust trial, which culminates in a horrific death, upon a criminal's cross. Chapters 11 through to 16 represent just a week in the Lord's life. Six chapters for approximately just six days. The first 25 verses of chapter 11 are all these kind of preparatory events that take place that occur before Jesus then engages in ministry in the heart of Jerusalem, all on the way to the cross. Verses 1 to 11, which will be our focus this morning, focuses on King Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And then verses 12 to 14, we see Jesus curse a fig tree. And then in verses 15 to 19, Jesus cleanses the temple. We all know that account where he turns the tables upside down. In verses 20 to 25, the very next morning, Jesus then gives a lesson on that withered and cursed fig tree to the disciples. And these all serve, as I said, as this type of preparatory events before Jesus commences his ministry in the heart of Jerusalem, where he will have serious encounter, plural rather, encounters with the religious leaders of Israel in the remainder of chapter 11 and most of chapter 12, before, and we can really look forward to this, before he gives a lengthy discourse on eschatology, that is, end times. And so we'll spend some time there. We can look forward to that. And then it's on to the trials in chapters 14 and 15, and then the crucifixion and the resurrection in 15 and chapter 16, which concludes this gospel. So six final chapters over covering the final six days in our Lord's life. And this morning, we find ourselves, as I said, in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11. So let's read that together. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. 
and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, desperate for your help, desperate that you would help us to understand what you would have for us in this hour through your word. Would you, Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit, guide and teach us and illuminate truth? Would you change and transform and even save and sanctify? Would you do a mighty work this day? And would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you reflect upon the Gospel of Mark, sure, there are the repetitions of the word immediately, some 41 times. But the focus of the Gospel of Mark, and if you were to sum up the Gospel of Mark, which seeks to answer the question, who is Jesus? You would be a very observant student and receive full marks for making the observation that basically each and every portion and each and every passage is literally saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. This gospel, just like the others, but in a more intensified and robust way, I believe, is divinely designed to turn our hearts and our minds upon Jesus. That's what I love most about this gospel. Personally speaking for a moment, I have been shown and it has shown me the preciousness of Jesus Christ in a very new way. It's shown me that in order to live this one fleeting and fast life, I need to be looking at and adoring and being absorbed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 8 verse 34 on what it means to truly take up your cross and follow Jesus, that is to be willing and ready to share in his sufferings, all while having him as our greatest satisfaction, the the great spring from where all our joy is found was truly, personally for me, life-changing. Sure, I had heard John Piper preach and write passionately about that for years, but it wasn't until that I truly appropriated that in my life that it, instead of it kind of standing distant and disconnected from reality, it became something that I had truly appropriated. And I know that that's been the reality for a number of you as well, that Jesus Christ is to be our ultimate satisfaction. We aren't to seek satisfaction in things that will never satisfy. We are to find our greatest joy in the one who came to give us joy, who came to replace our affections. And so that's what this gospel does. It calls out each and every passage 
Look at Jesus. Dwell upon Jesus. Be swept up in Jesus. Be satisfied in Jesus. And so it is again this morning. All eyes and all hearts turn once again upon Jesus, both in ours we trust and in the narrative inspired by God. And so in our passage this morning, we now see after several years of ministry all around Galilee and the surrounding regions where he was serving in preparation for his suffering. And, and while he's doing that, he's displaying his majestic glory each and every time. And all while he's performing these miracles that are validating himself as the Messiah, he's telling people not to say who he is, but to keep quiet. Well, after all that, we now see King Jesus enter Jerusalem. Jesus, out of his love for sinners like you and me, has marched ahead now out front to the place that has conspired to kill him on sight. We read from the Gospel of John that as he enters, they want to get him. They want to kill him. And he marches ahead and enters in. And after healing Bartimaeus physically, as we saw last week, and more importantly, healing Bartimaeus spiritually in Jericho, he's now approaching Jerusalem and will enter it for the final time. And this morning, I have three headings for you as we break down this entry, this king's arrival into Jerusalem. And I want to give you those right up front for you to hang your thoughts upon. Number one, we'll see first the king's arrival in verses 1 through 7. And then we'll see the king's applause in verses 8 to 10. And last, we'll see the king's assessment in verse 11. So the king's arrival, the king's applause, and the king's assessment. And let's get right underway and begin in verses 1 through 7 with the king's arrival. And let's set the scene. Look at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem. The entire account of the Messiah entering, entering Jerusalem is mentioned in every single gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only other event that is mentioned in all other gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. So all gospel writers include this account. It's only one of two things that are included. Each of them take a different angle, we'll see, on this one event. And what, what Mark doesn't mention in his gospel is what actually takes place when they are at Bethphage near Bethany, and that is the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. John 11 unfolds all of that. As we read in John 11 verse 45, actually that as a result of all that took place there with Lazarus, many people believed and they were confessing openly that he is the Christ. And so picture the scene. Jesus is now up, according to verse 1, he's now up on the Mount of Olives. We read that in verse 1, and the Mount of Olives is very high up. In fact, I calculated the heights this week, and the Mount of Olives is twice as high above sea level as Tomato Peak. So it's quite high, and just 300 feet below the Mount of Olives is Jerusalem. And so no doubt, after raising Lazarus from the dead, with people believing in him, and a large crowd gathering, he's now looking down upon that town, that city of Jerusalem. 
he's set his heart there. He's pounded the path on the way there. And while he is up there in the Mount of Olives, we see he sends two of his disciples. We don't know who they are, but we see they are given an assignment. Some commentators want to argue that one of them was Peter because of how detailed an eyewitness account this is, but we don't know. Two disciples head away and they go into a village. You'll find a colt there. The word is foul for colt. And so it's this young donkey. They're told to untie it. If anyone asks, what are you doing taking this donkey? Tell them that the Lord has need of it. Interesting, Jesus refers to himself as Lord. That doesn't happen often. Look at verse 4. Sure enough, they went away and found a colt tied at the door. A young donkey, and so they untie it. People then say, what are you doing? Verse 6. They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. Luke tells us in his account, they told him that the Lord has need of it. And when the people heard they heard that the Lord had need of it, they said, okay. Luke tells us the bystanders were actually the owners of the donkey. They probably purchased this donkey. In fact, Matthew tells us there's two of them. The donkey's mother is there too comes along as well but they hear that the Lord had need of it and they just give it if you were to go and read John chapter 11 and all that took place with Lazarus you would see just how often Jesus is referred to there in public as Lord and I think words spread in that area and so when the disciples say the Lord has need of it to the owners, the owners then connect that the Lord is Jesus. And as a result of all that they've heard about Jesus, they freely permit the cult to go, the cult that they own. Now, some want to say that Jesus, on earlier visits to Jerusalem, had seen that there was a cult there and that he had pre-planned and pre-arranged this encounter. In fact, they go into great detail about how Jesus had already set this up and pre-planned this with the owners but that wasn't the case because what is on display here is Jesus' divine foreknowledge and his sovereignty over all matters what we see here is his omniscience and his omnipresence that is he is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present and interestingly enough as he prepares to enter Jerusalem and fulfill old-age prophecy by doing so he is by divine sovereignty and by divine power that only God could possess, right, and only God could exercise, He is setting the scene for His arrival. In fact, He has already arrived. The King is on the scene, verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and the King sat on it, verse 7. The king has arrived and he's about to ride in. And that's what we see next. Number two, the king's applause. As we journey through this narrative, the king's applause in verses 8 through 10. Here we see what is no doubt a very large crowd. We know this from the passage last week. Several thousand, no doubt. Bartimaeus had regained his sight. His heart is now set aflame for Jesus. He's there. Zacchaeus is there as well. The tax collector had been converted. And so there's many others as well. And look at verse 8 now. 
And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the field. What's with the cloaks on the road? Israel had many kings throughout the years. Some bad, some okay. Arguably, one of the better ones was King Jehu. Jehu was king over Israel for about 28 years. Second Kings 9 and 10 tell us that he had the worshippers of Baal and Baal eradicated from Israel. And when he was declared king, Second Kings 9 and 12 tells us that the people laid down their cloaks before his path that he would walk into. As he would become king and walk in Jerusalem, they laid out their cloaks for him. And so King Jesus follows small king Jehu cloak-stepping footsteps if you will it was, a, it was ceremonial of a king's arrival we also see that people spread what Mark calls leafy branches John tells us that they were indeed palm branches now I want to show you something interesting look at verse 9 it says those who went in front and those who followed I want you to know that's two groups. That's two groups. This applause for this king is the merging together of two very large groups. We've we've seen that there has been a group that's come from Jericho. We saw that last time, a large group in Jericho. It's Mark chapter 10, verse 46 that tells us it's a large crowd coming up from Jericho. And then you have another group that John tells us about in John chapter 12, in verse 12. They had all gathered around Jesus in Bethany after Lazarus had been raised from the dead and attended a feast, and John calls that a large crowd too. And so you have this crowd that has come up from Jericho and this other crowd that has come from Jerusalem, and they merge together on the Mount of Olives. And on the path down to Jerusalem, which is about three kilometers down, as they lay their cloaks, ceremonial of a king, and as they lay their palm branches, we read now of their applause. Look at verse 9 and 10. For those who went in front and those who followed, that's the two groups, they were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, he, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. That's what they were singing. Literally, in the Greek, they were indeed, and the NAS brings that out, they were shouting this. And the word for shouting in the Greek is what we call an imperfect tense, meaning that it's something that they were saying repeatedly over and over again. This is the king's applause. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Luke, Mr. Doctor, details. He says that they began this as they descend down into Jerusalem. So they throw the king on the colt, they lay the cloaks and the palm branches, and as they descend down into Jerusalem, they begin singing repeatedly this. And Jesus doesn't silence them. Did you notice that? He doesn't silence them. Up until now, all we've ever read in the Gospel of Mark are words from Jesus, both to his followers or to demons those he has healed, 
do not tell anyone about me. I mean, how many times have we seen that in the Gospel of Mark? Do not tell anyone about me. Stay silent. Go and tell nobody what the Lord has done for you. But now, the silence is all set aside. And it's time for the silence to be met with applause. It's time for the world to know, here comes our King. And they're shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest, which I want you to understand can be understood this way. Save us, O God, who is in the heavens. Save us, O God, who is in the heavens. So Hosanna, they shout. Then they shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Interestingly enough, this phrase was repeatedly shouted as the Passover pilgrims would enter into Jerusalem for the Passover. This is not a unique phrase. This was applied to each pilgrim as they entered in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Maybe they even said she. I've got no idea. But this was repeatedly stated. Because remember, thousands upon thousands of Passover pilgrims. I mean, I think I read of an account of there was, there was almost a million people in Jerusalem at this time, at the Passover. They are making their way to Jerusalem. And so this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a quotation straight out of Psalm 118, verse 26. And it is sung at the Passover particularly and especially. The Hallel Psalms, they, they would sing those but what comes next in verse 10 is, 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 is actually quite interesting. I want to skim over that in verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This entire account is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. Some want to say that it certainly is. Others want to say that it's certainly not. I want to say, and there's nothing special about me, I think that it is and that it isn't. <laughs> Let me explain. When you study Mark, it's almost as though Mark purposely leaves out very specific messianic overtones and references. For example, Matthew says, they were shouting, Son of David. Hosanna, Son of David. Luke says they were shouting, Blessed is he, the King that comes, the Messiah that comes. Matthew and John quote the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy occurring here. The other three Gospels make mention of clear Messianic references, but Mark kind of doesn't. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Listen to a notable New Testament commentator, James Edwards, on his, from his commentary on this verse. Quote, It is doubtful from Mark that the crowd grasped the full significance of who Jesus was. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David is not a part of Psalm 118 or of any psalm or of any Judaistic writings at all. The reference to the coming kingdom is certainly eschatological, but the reference to our father David, which is not elsewhere found in Judaism, 
is not messianic. And so during the week, I kept asking myself, what's going on here? You have one event, the arrival of King Jesus. You have two crowds, and each of the other gospel writers use strong messianic references. And by messianic references, I mean words used by the crowd or by the gospel author to identify Jesus as the coming Messiah, the Savior, King. Yet Mark uses little like the others. Mark is being purposeful to show that while some in the crowd certainly knew who Jesus was and they were coronating him as king in the laying of the palm branches and the like, many of them were confused about who Jesus was. And I really think that's evident in the words of the coming kingdom of our father, David. As I said, the other gospel writers make it clear. Jesus is the son of David. The king has arrived. The Messiah is here. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But Mark doesn't so much. I want to show you why in a moment. But first, as I said... Let's look at what is triumphant about this and, and what is not. Well, first, the King of Kings is entering in, regardless. Regardless of any confusion on the part of any people, his schedule is sovereign, his timing is divine. He is entering into Jerusalem and he will establish his kingdom. That's triumphant. What is not triumphant, it just won't occur in the way or the timing that some of the people want. Mark is showing us that the people are of the mind that something great is indeed taking place, that if this is indeed the Messiah, some of the people are of the mind that a sort of military might will be ushered in for the Jews. They will no longer be under Roman oppression. That the Messiah will triumph then and there over their oppression. And then, just like the twelve who were confused when they first heard this, right? We've seen that earlier. When they heard that the Messiah wouldn't do that, but instead the Messiah is going to suffer When the people, some of them at least, when they heard that, they would then move from shouting Hosanna to shouting crucify him. I don't believe it was this wholesale rejection where everyone who was shouting Hosanna then shouted crucify him. But it certainly was the reality for some. For those who didn't truly know who Jesus was, for those who... John tells us in John chapter 12 verse 9 we're only following Jesus into Jerusalem no doubt shouting Hosanna as they went and getting caught up in the enthusiasm because John tells us in John chapter 12 verse 9 the large crowd came not only for Jesus' sake but also for Lazarus' sake you see many in this crowd were as one commentator put it they were thrill seekers not necessarily hostile to Jesus, 
but they weren't committed to Jesus. They were along for the ride. And I want to take a moment to talk about that. For I believe that that is a part of why Mark is presenting this encounter the way he is. If there is anything we can learn from Mark and what he has so carefully put down, it's this. Enthusiasm or excitement for Jesus does not equate to saving faith in Jesus. There have been many lessons in this evangelistic gospel that calls the Christian in each and every portion to look at Jesus and calls for the non-Christian to come to Jesus. There's been many lessons in this gospel and here's another one. You can be excited for Jesus, but just along for the ride. You can have great enthusiasm for Jesus, but you're just on the bus. You're not in the church. You can scurry about all over the place, busying yourself with Christian service. But Mark, who is ever the evangelist, is drawing out from this event the reality that you can be among the people who are confessing Jesus as King and Messiah, adoring Him as the King of Kings, and you can even be among them, but not one of them. And what's more, just like when Jesus doesn't give them what they want, that is, military, utopian might, ushered in, freedom from the oppression of the Romans... When Jesus doesn't give them what they want or Jesus is not the Jesus that they want, what do they do? They turn and their true heart is revealed. They turn later on in the week and say, crucify him. Didn't give me what I wanted. I was oppressed and I wanted freedom. Instead, the one who suffered unjustly on a criminal's cross calls you to suffer unjustly. They said, crucify him. The sad reality for some in the crowd is that they applauded the King of Kings. They applauded the Lord of Lords. Yet he was never their King or their Lord. They were caught up in the commotion and the activity and the buzz. And when Jesus didn't usher in what they wanted, they then turned on him. They rejected him. They then turned on those who follow him and rejected them too. If you take all that into account, no wonder Jesus says the words in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, listen to this, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city, he began to weep. What did he say? Saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from you. He wept. Some of the people this day, they bowed their knee to lay down a palm branch. 
but they never bowed their knee before Him in humility and laid down their own life. Asking for forgiveness for their sin. Are there some of you here this morning that are just laying down palm branches but never asking for forgiveness for your sin and turning to the King Jesus? You see, these people here, some of them, instead of not getting the utopia that they wanted from Jesus and freedom from oppression at the hands of the Romans and the prosperity that would have come as a result and the comfort and the ease that would come as a result, they then hand-delivered Him to be crucified. Does this all sound too far-fetched? Too, too much of a stretch? Luke tells us that the, the whole crowd on their way to Jerusalem was praising God, he says specifically, for all the miracles they had seen from Jesus. And now I want you to listen to an extract of Peter's sermon after the cross in the, on the day of Pentecost. Listen to this. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So what is the lesson in the midst of the entry of King Jesus? Well, as I drew from James Edwards' commentary, being enthusiastic for Jesus does not equate to being a disciple of Jesus. We've seen the king's arrival. We've looked at the king's applause. Let's look very quickly at what I've called the king's assessment in verse 11. After the applause, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple and came, maybe in italics, in your Bible, it is in mine. Jesus entered Jerusalem into the temple. Interesting to see that it wasn't so much Jerusalem that is the object of Jesus' entry, but rather the temple. Note also how this so-called triumphal entry ends. <laughs> Looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He left for Bethany. He left for where he just came from triumphal entry not, not truly it's a dull and abrupt ending there was no celebration and no pomp at the, in the evening it was Jesus just alone with the twelve and as I said he walks all the way back to Bethany from which he just came but here's the assessment while he's in the temple look at the middle of verse 11 and after looking around at everything, he was looking around at everything. Well, why is he doing that? He was sussing the place out. 
He was preparing for what he would do the next day. That is, come back and tip the tables of the money changers upside down and drive them all out. He was assessing just how bad things had become. And he was preparing to confront the money changers, to confront the chief priests and the scribes. And so there you go. This is somewhat a bizarre event, not really the coronation of, of a king you would, you would expect. Not like one that would happen these days. But if you think about it, it's quite consistent with God's economy. And what I mean by that is this. Every king has a herald, right? If the king of Tonga was to visit Hastings, he would have a herald who would go before him and I'm sure he would be dressed in the finest of linen. The dress and the grandeur of Jesus' herald and the oddity and the bizarre nature of Jesus' herald, who is no less than John the Baptist, the greatest man that ever lived, was camel's hair eating locusts and wild honey. So there's a consistency in God's ways there. His herald was absurd and King Jesus' entry and so-called coronation was kind of bizarre. But as we close, I want to draw something out for us. We've just read, read New Testament narrative about the entry of King Jesus into Jerusalem where he will die a death in our place, a substitutionary atonement, a penal substitutionary atonement, where everything that was due us will fall upon him, that he will die in our place as our substitute for our sin, in order to bring about salvation for all those who believe. We just read New Testament narrative, but incredibly and prophetically, this arrival of King Jesus was promised long ago. No surprise for many of you. This arrival was promised long before it took place on this eventful day. Another question I kept asking myself during the week is, why seven verses devoted to a donkey? <laughs> why the details as well? Like, down to the fact that the cult was tied up? Jesus says you'll find a donkey that is tied up and go and untie it and then they untied it. Why, why the details? Also, why the detail of finding one a cult that has never been ridden before? Well, way back in Genesis 49 verse 11 referring to the Messiah, it says he ties his cult to a vine way back in Genesis. In Numbers 19.2 and Deuteronomy 21.3, we read that an unbroken colt or an unbroken unbro heifer or an unbroken beast of burden was sacred. And that it was 
the privilege of a king in ancient times to, to ride on a beast that no one had ridden before. Amazing. Turn with me now to Zechariah 9. It's one book back from Malachi, which is one book back from Matthew, which is one book back from Mark. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just. Look at this. He is endowed with salvation. He is humble. And he is mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It's here in Zechariah 9. We see several truths about our King. Written hundreds and hundreds of and hundreds of years before Jesus ever set foot on the earth. We see here several truths about Jesus, and I've drawn these from Jesse Johnson's Operation Hosanna, which was brilliantly helpful. We see here first that our Jesus, He's King. Behold, your King is coming to you, verse 9. We see that Jesus is righteous. The word there for just is righteous. We see that Jesus is, is a savior. Look, when endowed with salvation. Fascinating language there. It doesn't mean that he himself is saved. It means that he is, he is so overflowing with salvation that it pours out to others. He is a savior, our king. He's on a donkey. He is humble. He's humble. I mean, look at his entry into Jerusalem. He borrowed a donkey. As I studied this week, I was reminded afresh, he borrowed a tomb. <laughs> he borrowed a boat. He borrowed a place to be born humble he'll preach peace verse 10 he will speak peace to the nations peace to the nation not just Jerusalem not just the Jews but to the nation he will usher in the new covenant look at it in verse 11 
has for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you. I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Wow. The king's entry was written long, long, long before it took place. And isn't it amazing that Jesus in his sovereign power, as he entered in, he prepared all those things to take place. He is sovereign over every area that took place. And I want to comfort you, my dear brothers and sisters, he is sovereign over every area of your life. Take great comfort in that. Every detail. We'll look in the coming weeks and months that Jesus went forth head first into suffering and death out of his love for each and every one of his people to deliver us from sin and to make for us a place in his kingdom. My king is so very kind. So we started chapter 11 today. <laughs> but I tell you what didn't start today was this gospel doing what it does perhaps like no other. Calling each and every one of us to look and dwell and meditate and think upon and be adoring and be affection obsessed with Jesus. And look at Jesus we must. And our look at Jesus must linger long for when it does linger long, we behold His glory. For He is the one who shines forth the glory of God. And when we behold His glory in the place where His glory is beheld, the Word of God, we are, 2 Corinthians 3.18, transformed from one level of Christ-likeness to the next. We're done. It was John Owen, one of the greatest theologians this world has ever known, truly, go and read John Owen, who said this, quote, I have had more advantages by private thoughts of Christ than by anything else in this world. And I think when a soul has satisfying and exalting thoughts of Christ himself, his person, his glory. It is the way whereby Christ dwells in such a soul. The private thoughts upon him from the word of God, private thoughts upon him as your affections are drawn to the one who is revealed in the word of God. He says this, if I have observed anything by experience, it is this. A man may take the measure of his growth and decay according to his thoughts and meditations upon the person of Jesus Christ, the glory of his kingdom and his love. End quote. As we study to know Christ, we grow in love for Christ, and as a result, we find true and lasting satisfaction in Christ, and that propels us to want to live for Christ. Just one more thing. It's only just struck 11. One more thing. Look at verse 11 of Mark 11 with me just one more time. 
Jesus entered Jerusalem and into the temple and after looking around at everything, Jesus looked around. He, he made an assessment of what was going on and he resolved the next day to cleanse it from what? To cleanse it from unrighteousness. He saw the unrighteousness and for a moment he remained silent for a moment for the non-Christian here within earshot of my voice I want you to understand something that if you are living in sin don't take his lack of action or his silence to mean that things are okay he will come and overturn your very life in a moment unless you repent. You need to turn away from your sin and trust in this King, Jesus, who humbled himself and went to the cross. You need to humble yourself and go to the foot of the cross and beg for mercy. And he'll grant it. Because our King is so very kind. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, that remaining sin, that lingering sin, you and I must deal with it. Because he sees our hearts. He assesses our hearts. So let's live to please him. Let's live for his glory. Well, we have worshipped the king. Let's go serve the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you bless us so much. Lord, we live day to day with trouble that you tell us each day has. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us not to be worrisome or anxious. Help us to be absorbed in Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray.